Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books in Canadian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Phil Henderson, the host of the channel. Today, I'll be talking with Dr. Rita Cordemoon, who, along with Drs. Davina Bandar, Renisa Milani, and Setwinder Corbains, are editors of Unmooring the Komagata Maru, Charting Colonial Trajectories, published in 2019 by the University of British Columbia Press. Rita DeMoon, welcome to the show. Thanks, Phil. It's good to be here with you. Thanks. Uh, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Sure. Um, So I would first of all say that I am the great-granddaughter of Nan Singh, who is my great-grandfather, who died in uh, India um, fighting the British. I am the daughter of Krishna Kaur and Karam Singh. I'm an auntie, a sister, a daughter, a partner. Um, I'm also an anti-racist feminist. I've been doing work around anti-racist feminism for over 35 years now, which seems like a really long time. <laughs> I'm also increasingly learning about the work that caste is doing in terms of caste supremacy. So as a Sikh uh, person, I am from the Ramgaria caste, which has some caste privilege um, in relation to other groups. Um, I'm also someone, and I hesitate to share this, I think my natural inclination is as someone who sits a lot in the place of grief and sadness, but I'm aspiring to be joyful and creative. (laughs) I'm doing that as an aspiring artist um, and a donkey player, which is an Indian drum. I'm also an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Victoria. And I am calling in today from uh, the place of the Lekwungen people, um, which is commonly known as Victoria. And UVic itself is... Part of the story that I think we need to tell when we acknowledge the place we're from, and though UVic is engaged in some good practices uh, around indigeneity, 
one of the ones that it really needs to rethink is its participation in the 30-meter 30, uh, 30 telescope that is being built right now in Manakia uh, in Hawaii, um, which has been challenged by Hawaiians there, by indigenous people there. Um, and uh, UVEC is really participating in kind of what we might call transnational settler colonialism. Um, so I want to acknowledge that, that that is work that I think that people at UVIC need to really challenge. Um, and for those that are not at UVIC to really learn about the struggles that that community is doing. Fantastic. Thank you, Rita. Um, it might be most helpful to the listeners if we could begin with you explaining what was, or as your introduction with Davina Bandar evocatively suggests, is the Komagata Maru? Hmm. Yeah, good question. Um, so typically, I'm going to give you multiple answers to this one because I saw this question and it really did capture the spirit of the book that we published um, called Unmooring the Komagata Maru, Charting Colonial Trajectories. Um, and uh, what we were really trying to do in that book is sort of identify the ways in which the Komagata Maru is t- seen in Canada and to challenge some of those ways. So typically the Komagata Maru is seen through kind of a Canadian historiography lens. So here the focus is on the ethno-racial history. The narration starts from the ship's arrival on May 23rd, 1914 in the Barad Inlet, Vancouver, and usually ends with the ship's forced departure two months later where most of the passengers, who were um, almost all, I think, Punjabi, the, about 340 were Sikh, two, 24 were Muslim and 12 Hindu passengers, including two women and two children, so mostly men. The ship was commissioned by a Sikh businessman, uh, Babur uh, Gudit Singh Sahali, and the story goes that these passengers were not permitted to land in Canada to come on shore because of a continuous journey regulation that had been imposed by the Canadian authorities, which essentially meant that you had to come through a non-stop direct route um, from your country of origin or your place of citizenship. So this particularly impacted people from um, India and Japan because you had to stop somewhere. The ships just didn't have the capacity um, to, to come directly. So it was a, a ship that arrived in the Broad Inlet. It was detained for two months with very limited capacity to replenish supplies. And it was essentially forced to leave um, through the use of two British ships, one smaller, one larger one, um, after two months. So that's the way it's typically seen. Um, it was uh, uh, taken up in different ways um, by other scholars. So typically it's seen as a sort of Canadian ethnic racial history. Um, Renisa Mawani in our uh, edited book here on the Komagatamaru refers to it in a different way. And she refers to it as a minor history on a global scale. And so while the Canadian um, historiography approach um, sort of identifies key moments in which the ship arrived, it sat in Canadian shores 
then it was forced and sent back. It's seen as uh, a form of uh, racist immigration policy. Mawani really emphasizes that it's actually a form of minor history, which aren't trivial histories or microcosms of events that have been played out. Um, but instead, they are providing a different kind of political landscape in which we can look at the major feelings and forces at work. Um, and this kind of history, this sort of notion of minor history is very much inspired by Deleuze and Guattari's work. So um, it's not necessarily even history from below, um, but it is a method in many ways that directly challenges the systems of classification and scale that Mawani notes uh, presenting the Komagata Maru such as a minor history on a global scale. So the different geographic locations in which the ship traveled, um, traveled both literally um, in terms of its journey from uh, different parts of the of Asia, beginning in uh, Hong Kong and moving on through Kobe and uh, Japan and Singapore, and then also transversing time, uh, the past, present, and future, that the Komagata Maru was a so-called incident, and I put that in quotes, um, but when we think about the ways in which the, the journey of the Komagata Maru continues in the present, then we really have to think about the ways in which the, sh- the ship continues past 100 years. So um, situating it from the perspective of minor history allows us to really give it a different perspective and scale. So it's not just about what happened in Canada, um, but it's also about what happened when the ship was forced to be deported um, during the time that the First World War had just started. The ship was taken just outside Calcutta after it was uh, forcibly uh, departed from the Barad Inlet. And it was met with a coercive set of legislation in India, because, of course, uh, there was British rule in India during the same period, uh, where the ingress into Indian ordinance and the foreigners' ordinance were passed very quickly in India, And this essentially granted the Indian authorities the ability to arrest and register and detain and prison anyone that was suspected of challenging British rule while abroad. So that part, the Calcutta story, um, doesn't really get told when we read it through Canadian historiography. Moreover, what happened was that the ship was met um, by the colonial authorities and there were um, several of the, the men that returned were either killed or arrested um, by this massacre that happened in Calcutta or just outside Calcutta at Budge Budge. So those are, that's another way that we might sort of think about um, the story of the, the journey of the Komagata Maru. So I like to think of it as a journey rather than um, an incident or an event. And I think... Um... Also, as you sort of alluded to, it's unmoored from simply historiography as well. One of the chapters, uh, which has multiple authors, details an incident in the 2010s in Canada that has almost 
exact echoes of this situation uh, in which a boat of Tamil refugees was similarly refused entry to, uh, I believe, the port of Vancouver as well. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about the present history of the Komagata Maru that we see Mm -hmm. in situations like that? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I mean, to me and to the rest of the co- the other co-editors of our book, our, co- our co-edited book, is really emphasizing the ways in which the Komagera Maru is not just a singular moment in the past. This is a continuation of what has always happened. And this is why Davina Bandar and I, we really frame this as a story of itineracy of movement, right, a formation of subjectivity for those that are on board of sh- on board ships, that they are itinerant subjects of colonialism, where subjectivity has been produced, it's been produced through legal, social and political means, often in a state of precariousness. And that was certainly the case in 2010 as well. So the kind of regulation that the Komagata Maru, which was a Japanese ship, by the way, with Japanese crew, which is part of the story that doesn't often get told either. But part of that um, journey of the Komagata Maru in 1914 was about the ways in which the journey was regulated, the technologies of mobility and immobility, particular when we think about borders and the space of borders and the ocean as corridors of movement. Um, and dislocation and displacement. Well, the same things are happening in the present context. And we saw this with the MV Sansi, which brought the Tamil refugees uh, to uh, on board. And um, where we have what uh, it was referred to in 1914 with the Komagadamaru as imperial citizenship. But I think we can still think about the contemporary context of imperialism. And your work, uh, Phil, around settler imperialism, I think is quite brilliant with regards to thinking about the transnational, right, the trans-state ways um, in which settler colonialism is continuing or the control through surveillance technologies, through uh, technologies of control, through systematic network of um, governance that's happening with regards to processes of migration. Um, so we saw that when the Tamil refugees arrived. We could think of the Komagadamaru in 1914 uh, in terms of it being an actual detainment centre, a floating detainment centre, right? Like people are being detained on the ship, not allowed to leave, they're restricted. We saw that with the MV Sansi passengers as well, that most of those passengers were, in fact, kept in um, detention centers in British Columbia, right? Those were brought onto land. Some were charged with uh, trafficking people. uh, And, of course, trafficking is a serious issue that we we do have to really think about how people are making money um, by, uh, you know, taking money from people who are really vulnerable in refugee situations, Um, and forced to leave. But in this case, the British Columbia government did the same as it did in 1914. It was really controlling the movement of people um, by uh, um, uh, containing them within certain kinds of centres, but also through um, discourses of racial colonialism, right? Like that the 
there's only a particular kind of subject that can come to Canada. Uh, in 1914, the language that was used was around white imperial citizenship. Um, and in the contemporary era, it, the language of refugees, you know, legitimate refugees or proper refugees is used against others uh, that are coming in irregular ways. But in fact, Canada has signed international agreements in which um, there aren't illegal, it's not illegal to come on a ship at all. Uh, it's just irregular, according to the law. Um, so absolutely, there are resonances. Um, many of those people that were detained from the, the Tamil um, arrivals that came in 2010, many of them were held in detention centers for over 10 years. Children, that included children as well. There were some prosecutions that took place, but for sure, this was uh, this is a continuation. The Komagadamaru is a continuation. It tells us about the continuing relevance of coloniality, the geographies of the Trans-Pacific, and also the challenges to migratory political positions. Right. So the, the, there are extensive um, parameters that the Komagadamaru represents, well over a hundred years. That's excellent. Thank you. Um, to return to the events that you outlined that are specific to the Komagata Maru, uh, these are historical events that have made a major impact on scholarship, uh, especially in terms of how Canadian multiculturalist policies are both studied and historicized. Could you explain uh, to the audience how the events surrounding the Komagata Maru are typically narrated within Canadianist scholarship, and then what you and the other contributors to this volume see as some of the major pitfalls to these treatments. I believe in the introduction to the text, you list uh, three major tendencies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is really important. So there has been increasing attention paid to the Komagadamaroon. We certainly saw that in the lead up to the 100-year sort of moment of marking it. So in 2014, we saw a number of plays and um, stories, performances, films. Um, and part of that that we wanted to really attend to was to challenge the um, focus on Canada. So one, we wanted to decenter the national history. We wanted to recenter a colonial analytic. So that was one kind of goal of the book. And the other was to really map the movement and network of global colonialism so that we could reposition Canada and its colonial formation within a larger imperial context. So in the book, uh, Davina Banda and I, particularly in the introduction, we really want to challenge the ways that the Komagadamaru gets narrated um, as a, a past incident of Canadian racist exclusion of immigrants. And this usually happens by paying particular attention to the continuous journey regulation. And, and as I mentioned, the continuous journey regulation was a regulation in which um, you had to arrive through a uh, continuous, i.e. non-stop um, route to Canada, which, by the way, was not only difficult, impossible to do at the time, 
um, because of the shipping technology. But it was also something that the shipping company, the Canadian um, shipping company, didn't actually want. They didn't want to stop coming, bringing passengers to them. This was a lucrative uh, a business opportunity, but they got so much pressure from the Canadian authorities that they basically had to stop sending ships um, from Asia so that um, the uh, colonial authorities in Canada um, could limit the number of people coming from India. So it's fascinating that uh, this was the continuous journey, how the continuous journey regulation was used because it was amended multiple times to deal with some of the ways in which people were subverting it, right? And people were always subverting these laws. There were a number of loopholes um, within the continuous journey regulations. And so the Canadian Authority also added a, a requirement of $200 in order for passengers to come, um, which was for many people, a huge amount of money, right? This was a, a, a the amount a family might make in a year. Um, so this was a huge amount of money. But what typically happens in the Canadian narrative is that it gets positioned as a past incident of racist exclusion. Um, and what um, we try and do in the book is really challenge this. That one, it's not limited to immigration laws and practices, the Komaganamaru, that it can't be contained within a single national narrative and that it's not in the past, right? And part of the way that we're thinking about this, Davina Bandar and I in the introduction of the book is really thinking about the dispossession of indigenous peoples, of their lands, their waterways, their systems of governance. And um, mainland BC is particularly interesting because much of BC was without a treaty process uh, and so that's not to say all of it was, but much of it was. Um, so the framing of a past incident doesn't actually attend to situations like the MV Sansi in 2010 with Tamil uh, migrants, nor does it deal with the ongoing dispossession of indigenous peoples. The second um, issue that we raised with these national narratives that really emphasize um, multicultural policy is that the Komagadamaru is a story of South Asian migration in which there is South Asian resilience. So in this formation of the story, um, the thing that's emphasized is that there were a number of ships that came. There was the Empress of Japan in 1906, the Tata in 1906, the Monteagle in 1907, the Panama Maru in 1913, but for some reason, the Komaganamaru really gets uh, sustained attention in the histories of South Asians in Canada. Might be because there were very dramatic actions involving the Komaganamaru, both by Canadian officials and the passengers on board, which brilliantly prevented um, being forced to leave when the, the Brits sent a small ship, uh, hoping that it would essentially force the the ship to leave the Barad uh, Inlet, the passengers threw all sorts of projectiles, I, I guess you would call them, uh, at the authorities and um, won. That, the, that little ship had to disappear. So the story of South Asian resilience really gets taken up um, 
in emphasizing the ways that public funds were raised from members of the Punjabi community, many of whom used to gather at the Sikh uh, temple or the Gudwara, whether they were Muslim, uh, Hindu or Sikh. And um, this is kind of celebrated today in the contemporary era where the Canadian government has funded educational activities about the Kama Gadamaru to show that it recognizes South Asian resilience. So, for example, in the uh, early 2000s, the Canadian government funded educational activities through the Community Historical Recognition Program that was run by Citizenship and Immigration Canada. It funded, for example, the um, a monument um, as well as a museum at the Vancouver's Khalsa Dewan Society, uh, which is uh, also a Gudwara. Um, and we have all sorts of stories that uh, retell Canadian exclusion through South Asian resilience. And um, this is important in many ways because it's commemorating the journey of that ship and the passengers, is marking a historical trauma. Um, but what it's also doing is that it's emphasizing the pioneering spirit of South Asians who attempted to arrive um, in ways that don't get at the um, settlement of South Asians, right? So the trans-Pacific and the colonial um, and anti-colonial dimensions really get emphasized. The pioneering spirit really gets emphasized as opposed to the ways that South Asians actually were positioned in structures of settlement um, on indigenous lands. So that's the second way that the multicultural narrative, the Canadian multicultural narrative is that this is a story of South Asian resilience. And the third is that the Komagadamaru is a marker of past Canadian exclusion, but also present multicultural inclusion. So the Komagadamaru gets taken up as a, a dark moment, and I put that in quotes. Uh, I, feel, I feel like that's in itself very anti-Black language um, in Canadian history. And it's now a nation that's been reformed, it's redeemed, it's more authentically multicultural, more immigrant-friendly. It has been since the 1970s that there's much more multicultural consensus in the, in the present, that if this happened now, this would, uh, wouldn't be tr- the passengers wouldn't be treated that way. And this is really um, this is really kind of replicated through all the state apologies that are made for the Komagadamaru, right? That this is a changed nation. And certainly South Asian groups and South Asian MPs have really pushed for an apology um, for what happened in 1914. So we have seen, for example, in 2008, um, discussion in parliament with regard for the government to apologize in the uh, BC, Columbia legislature, we also saw a unanimous motion of apology in 2008. We saw Stephen Harper acknowledge in 2008 in a, uh, a South Asian event in Surrey, British Columbia, apologize, which wasn't really an apology at all. It, may, it was never written into the state records, for example. But as a number of scholars have, have argued, particularly the scholars that look at the ways in which the state uses reparations and apologies to signal that it's changed, it really, um, it really overshadows 
masks over the reality of ongoing colonial violence against indigenous people, black communities, Arabs and Muslims, and other people of color in this country. So the national uh, narrative of redemption also minimizes Canada's involvement in these international networks of regulation and prohibition that control the movement of people from the so-called global south to the global north, and that continue through the temporary foreign workers program where Canada brings in um, not just cheap labor, but also um, highly skilled labor to this country, right? It's very economically driven policies. So that was a long answer, but yeah, those are the three kind of narratives. And what we're trying to do in the book is to really emphasize that the ship in 1914 crossed oceans and jurisdictions, Hong Kong, Malaya, Singapore, Japan, West Bengal. It also had significant implications within and outside the British Empire. It also engaged in, in um, the way, uh, forms of colonial surveillance beyond any one nation state, and it was um, regulating imperial citizenship, not just within Canada, but across these imperial contexts. So locating the Comagata Maru within multicultural policies, as they're typically narrated in Canada, as they're typically narrated, are very limited in what they tell us about the journey of this ship. I think that is so helpful in terms of understanding where unmooring seeks to take us as a text then too, because you set out in your introduction that the analytical lens that your text is really interested in is what you have already referred to in this interview as the colonial analytic. Could you discuss this shift in scholarly and theoretical framing, uh, what it reveals uh, that might otherwise be obscured in discussions of the Komagata Maru specifically, and what it also offers as a broader methodological intervention. Uh, relatedly, before I let you answer, the subheading of your text refers to colonial trajectories, which I read in conversation with this colonial analytic. Uh, what does this notion of trajectories evoke, and how might this also help us to understand not only the Komagata Maru, but the functioning of colonial and imperial systems more broadly? Mm. Yeah, really important questions. So the first part in terms of um, what is revealed through the colonial analytic, both in terms of theory and method. So I think one of the key pieces that this book really offers through the colonial analytic is that there's not a shared singular way in which colonialism is practiced, um, that there are fragments of power imbued with colonial formations. And what we try and do in this book, and this is following the method of others such as Anne Stoller, is pursue connections between particular kinds of governing regimes and the broader dynamics of rule. And for us, this really opens up all sorts of lines of inquiry and key conceptual frameworks of colonialism and imperialism. So essentially, we're challenging methodological nationalism. And we also, so that's the, the sort of framing that we use in our opening chapter, Davina and I in our opening chapter. Um, and um, 
uh, Mongia, Radhika Mongia, in her brilliant book, in 2019 book, um, is called, I will check the name of that in a few moments, um, which is looking at oh, Indi- Indian uh, migration and uh, formations, the colonial sort of genealogies of the, the state. She calls it methodological statism. Right, it's challenging both methodological nationalism and methodological statism. That's what the colonial analytic is really trying to do. And by doing this, we're trying to center the operations and effects of power that exist on subject formations, but also the precariousness of movement of some travelers and how this transcends national and state borders, right? State controlled borders. in my own work, what this has really allowed, and we do signal this in the in the opening chapter, is that, for example, when we use the colonial analytic, we can think about the ways in which there were multiple competing nationalisms at work with regards to the Komaganamaru alone. So this is just a very quick overview. There was Indian nationalism in India, which there was the struggle for self-rule, paramount amongst ordinary Indians. So there's Indian nationalism in India. There was also anti-British nationalism among the Indian diaspora. And this was all across North America, Asia, Europe, South Africa. So there's Indian nationalism, anti-British nationalism in the diaspora. There's also um, the notion of being a British subject of Indian origin with the right to move across nations under the dominion of the empire, in quotes. There's also the emerging Canadian nationalism, right? So 1914 was still a time when Canada as a sovereign nation state was still being consolidated, one that was supposed to be independent of Britain, that could control its own immigration. And Canada, particularly when the First World War started, really um, emphasized this by uh, contributing its own armed forces and its own budget to the war effort. Uh, So there's also that that's happening. Canada is also trying to assert its sovereignty still over territory and governance. So it's in constitutional battles and national debates with um, French-speaking settlers, particularly in regards to language laws, resources, and identity. So Canada is still emerging as a nation and a nation state, as a sovereign nation state. And then, of course, the other kinds of nationalism at work is indigenous nationhood, which has been violently disregarded at this time. There's genocide being brought to to bear against indigenous people, both by the British and the French and their laws. So there's these competing nationalisms that are entangled webs of colonialism and anti-colonialism. This isn't just a story of Canada. This is what is moving through the ship's journey. Um, And what we try and emphasize in the book is that there's more than a binary of the colonizer and the colonized through this colonial analytic that we can be paying attention to. Certainly white supremacy is key to this story still. Um, But if we just focus on Canada through the, uh, through, so what the colonial analytic does is get beyond the focus on just Canada. It also gets, tries to get beyond um, a singular national focus. 
and it also tries to transcend the colonial colonized distinction. Um, not least because British Indian subjects were all across the world in various colonies in the service of the British Army. Many couldn't access imperial citizenship, and there were hundreds uh, of thousands of anti-colonialists that we could see moving across the empire uh, at this time as well, right? And they are engaging in anti-colonialism at different levels, at different registers. There was, for example, the Gadar Party, which was a, an anti-British revolutionary party, which had networks in Oregon and California and Japan and Hong Kong and Singapore and France, and as well as Canada, India and Britain, right? So the colonial analytic really brings to view all of these parts of the story that are very much limited by a methodological nationalist focus on Canada. And I think that that is the strength of that as uh, an analytic in Canadian studies for it to adopt is really apparent uh, actually in that chapter that we already discussed on the Tamil refugees as well, because if the focus is on the colonial power dynamic, we actually can see the continuity that you've nicely traced out in terms of the ongoing occupation and dispossession of indigenous territory here in Turtle Island. But it also puts into much sharper focus uh, the ongoing colonization project in Tamil Elam as well. And we can see these trajectories on, as you said, the minor history on a global scale is the history in which we live in the present as well. So I thought that those two notions really paired quite well together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this is a very ambitious text, actually. Uh, and for listeners, it brings together 14 chapters, three appendices, and by my count, 19 contributors. Um, it's sprawling in its uh, geographical and historical scope. Could you talk a little bit about how this text came to be? Uh, both as a conceptual project, but also I'm particularly interested in the work of how books get made. Um, and so what are the practical steps that other scholars who share similar commitments uh, might consider when setting out to produce similarly collaborative interventions? This is a, um, a difficult question in some ways. Uh, in the sense that I find every project is a little bit different. So in this, in this case, the appendices were critical. So what I think that we've really discovered through different kinds of collaborations, or at least this has been my experience, is that we need to do the work of archiving. So we need to document what has happened and how it has happened. Hence, we start the book with um, a chronology of events in some ways, right? Which isn't to say that it's limited, but it's to show the pattern and the continuation of the pattern. And then we also have the apologies from the various governments as part of the appendices. That's also key to us. Um, and so those, those pieces felt like they're not considered academically sort of standalone chapters, right? But to us, they're all part of the knowledge formation. So I think we can use appendices and other techniques 
uh, as a way to offer what you call, Phil, rabbit holes, um, right? Uh, for listeners, Phil's uh, dissertation uh, brilliantly uses footnotes as rabbit holes. Um, and I think these are methodological techniques that we can use, right, to open up other lines of inquiry, to see where it might take us. Um, so we might read, for example, one of the appendices around apology around the Komagatamaru with apologies that are happening in the same year with regards to Japanese internment or with regards to the Indian residential schools. The, the same year we saw an apology in Parliament by then uh, Prime Minister Harper. Like, how might we read these together? So that becomes important to do. The language of unmooring the Komagatamaru, which I think is really quite brilliant language, and it was really to emphasize the, name we, the ways we need to unmoor from Canadian historiography, uh, came from Ranisa Mawani. That was her language. And I, I think it's important for us when we do collaborative work to acknowledge what particular people bring, even though through collaboration we all kind of uh, help each other think things through. Sometimes it's not clear who brought what, but in this case, it's absolutely clear. Um, so Renisa's concept, conceptual framing of unmooring is really important. Part of this was that we were very aware, well, four of us are South Asian. We were very aware that um, the anniversary of the 100-year centenary um, uh, Event, uh, events that were being planned for 2014 to mark the journey of the Komagatamaru were coming up. So we started to getting together in 2012-2013 um, to challenge some of the focus on Canada. So that we knew we wanted to do that. We were very intentional about who we wanted to invite. So um, we really focused on interdisciplinarity, who was working with different kinds of archives or different kinds of print media, with contemporary uh, memorializations, whether that was novels. So we have English lit people, we have media people, we have historians, um, political scientists, you know, South Asian studies scholars. Uh, the interdisciplinarity, interdisciplinarity was key um, to the way that we approached the project. Having said that, we really initially, when we started the conversations, were hoping that it would be a combination of an academic project and one that centered non-academic interventions. We really wanted to do that so that we could look at the historical, the contemporary, and the ongoing implications of the voyage. Um, but one of the ways in which the academy shapes the kind of projects that we end up doing and how we doing, do them is that we're all feeling pretty burnt out and limited in our capacities. And so um, the people that were initially part of the team also changed when we shifted our focus primarily to the academic aspect of this project. And the non-academic audiences and participants that we had initially hoped we would invite, um, that really got dropped. And in the end, that wasn't a bad thing because there were so many amazing projects happening 
um, in the community, by communities outside of the academy at the same time. Um, that also tried to link older racial regimes with contemporary border regulation, for example. So, um, yeah, I think that we did in our choices, in our collaborative choices, really try and think about interdisciplinary conversations, who was engaged in new methodological approaches. Um, one chapter, for example, in the book, uh, the chapter by Hamid, looks at creative excavations of archives. Um, we have Kauri Muzukami's chapter, which focuses on the Japanese um, experience, uh, really challenging the Canadian focus by foregrounding the writings of Shiozaki, who was the co-owner of the Japanese steamship, the Komigata Maru, and who was on the ship, the vessel itself, from Hong Kong to Vancouver. And then we really wanted to invite um, someone like Tariq Malik, who was a poet and a novelist. And um, he he's a beautiful thinker and writer, and he brings poetry to the book. Um, and so we were delighted that he would participate. Um, yeah. So some of the practical steps is really thinking about who do you want to partner with? Who's your primary audience? Who do you know? What kind of energies do you have? Um, and one of the other pieces that we uh, emphasized was that we actually came together as a group, all the participants, in person, in a workshop. So that was the other key piece, that we actually sort of engage in conversation with one another. I think that's really uh, helpful. And it sort of makes me want to go in a bunch of different directions uh, with follow-up questions, but I'll stick to the one that I've, I've set here to begin with. Other than maybe to say, it sounds like one lesson to be derived from this is that uh, a work as rich as unmooring is the product of being committed to what you could call slow work, which is rather than producing on the time scale that either a publishing house or the academy seems to think we ought to be producing on, it's important to be producing on the time scales that like our real sets of relationships that are invested in this work uh, ask of us. And that to me, I think is maybe a really important lesson to derive in terms of how we relate to what scholarly practices in general. Um, yeah, my next question though uh, is about the rich multidisciplinarily disciplinarity of this text uh, that you've already alluded to, Rita. And I just wanted to invite you maybe to reflect a little bit more uh, about what it means to take seriously as a work of scholarship uh, other forms of writing or thinking or expression like the poetic pieces that are included in this text as well. Uh, often we think of scholarship as very linear and very text-driven um, in the sort of classic monograph format. But how might the work that you and your contributors have done in this uh, volume serve as a model for what we think of as scholarship going forward? Mm-hmm. Just on that point around slowing down um, before answering this question, I think that now I would, 
I feel much more comfortable sort of articulating the importance of not working on capitalist time, right? Like um, doing, getting away from this notion that we, you know, we have to be productive the way we use our time and we have to use our time efficiently. I'm putting in air quotes. Um, the challenge with doing, approaching that in the academy is that, and I certainly found this with the book, I also felt a pressure to get this book out. Um, and that was partly because there were several contributors who were non-tenured and needed the publication in order to get tenure. So it mattered. So we're also institutionally um, determined in ways that I think most of us would resist and not want. So, yeah, I do think that's always a struggle. Um, so I think what partly motivated and informed our decision to bring this multidisciplinary approach, both in orientation and form, um, was really to challenge the ways that we understand epistemology. Uh, and where does knowledge making happen with regards to the Comagata Maru? Uh, and part of the ways that people take up archives uh, in the volume, um, print media in the volume, is really important, as well as the poetry. Um, novels, uh, you know, the way that they look at novels in the book, uh, as well as political documents, and um, one author looks at letters that were written between various agents of colonialism, as well as members uh, of those that were challenging colonialism, that these kinds of um, approaches really help us to get at parts of the story, the journey of the Komagetamaru that either are on the margins or don't get told. So in many ways, we wanted, this was part of, the, of our intention to disrupt Canadian historiography, to challenge Canadian nationalism. Um, and part of how we do that is not just in content, but also the form. So that was definitely part of what was going on for us. And I think when we're thinking about future scholarship, um, it really emphasizes like what who are we serving which communities are we serving in doing the scholarship that we're doing and for us part of this was challenging um, South Asian diasporas to question Canada uh, to question the, the um, presumptions of Canadian sovereignty of Canadian nationalism uh, as the focus on, on Canada, on Canadian multiculturalism. So it was very much um, thinking about what the imperial and colonial context adds. So it's refusing that kind of methodological nationalism that I think is the imperative as a model for future scholarship. So, uh, Rita, I've seen in talks that you gave uh, as this volume was in process you reflecting on the conceptual work of unmooring, which you already mentioned uh, was brought to the volume by, uh, I think you said, Renisa Mouani. Um, can you talk about the sort of generative intellectual movements that this concept of unmooring enables and also reflect on this text in the context of what it might mean to unmoor our understanding of the Komagata Maru as well as the national, colonial, or imperial milieu 
in which this ongoing history occurs. Are there linkages that you see between the conceptual work of unmooring in your study of colonial trajectories throughout the Pacific and other concepts such as the unsettling of the settler colonialism in North America or Christina Sharp's account of wake work in the context of the Black Atlantic? Yeah, I really love this question because I think the question itself is very much about the ways in which we're thinking about unmooring in the book, which is um, unmooring the Canadian historiography approach to the Comagatamaru to take it beyond the Canadian space and Canadian time of 1914. And I think what the concepts of unsettling do with relation to settler colonialism is also take it outside of just the borders of the Canadian nation and then also out of time, like we're sort of transcending time, right? Like that the history is in the present um, as one aspect. And uh, wake work, right, is also getting a time and place, the movement that's happening, the ongoing legacies um, that uh, sit with us with regards to the Black Atlantic. So more specifically, um, I think a mooring and unsettling really come together in my own work. And this is less so in uh, the introduction, but certainly in terms of how I'm thinking about these concepts now, that um, they all get unmooring and unsettling, get at what Jody Birds calls a cacophony, right? A cacophony of relations of power. And here I'm thinking about the ways in, in which, for example, we need to unsettle settler colonialism in the ways we need to unsettle our conception of India. That India wasn't just British India during the time of um, in a British rule. <clears throat> the time when the Komagadamaru uh, was physically making its journey, but it's also a settler colonial place. It always has been. Um, Manmeet Singh and Prabhdeep Kela really helped me understand this work in terms of thinking of India as a, as a settler colonial place, that although the government of India doesn't officially recognize the tribes as indigenous that are there, there are thousands of original inhabitants of India that um, were really, uh, and there's multiple linguistic groupings within those that really um, are challenging the way that we understand India as a sort of nation state as well. So the kind of unmooring of the ways that we understand nation states doesn't just apply to Canada, but also to India. Um, And part of this too uh, is thinking about unsettler unsettling settler colonialism is thinking about those interconnections between these uh, global uh, formations of power. And one of the key ones in the Indian context has to be Brahmin supremacy. It has to be about the ways that the caste system has been imposed on through religious principles of purity and pollution that are deemed unchangeable and um, reinforced by Brahminism. And this is important in the contemporary era where we have Modi, Prime Minister of India, currently really reinforcing um, casteist divisions uh, through the very kind of Hindu Hindu nationalist uh, politics that he's practicing and doing that through Islamophobia, right? The particular targeting of Muslims in India 
um, and the ways in which they are facing violence. So the unsettling, the unmooring is partly about um, India itself. Uh, and then it's also about linking Canada to the imperial context. So why did so many um, Punjabis want to leave Punjab in the period of the early 1900s? What was that about? And part of that answer lies in the, the uh, ways in which the Brits in India were imposing policy such as the Canal Colonies Project in 1886 that started, where there was large-scale agricultural farming, exploitative resource extraction, privatization of land, which was then reinforced through the Punjab Land Alienation Act of 1900. But those are still impacting the ways in which Punjabis are alienated from their land through colonial projects. And then you have transnational mobility happening. Right, through colonial expansion, through, but in the contemporary era, through marketization, through racial capitalism. Um, so that, that um, understanding of unsettling is unsettling the focus just on Canada and settling the focus just on its nation border uh, container um, and thinking about the connections that are happening globally. And of course, some of those also um, require that we think about the unevenness of colonialism, uh, that there were multiple ships and multiple changes to the laws, the continuous journey regulation uh, that happened in 1914, um, which led to the Koma Gadamaru, the culmination of the Koma Gadamaru. And there were also uh, Sikhs that aligned with whiteness um, in the period in which the Koma Gadamaru's journey was taking place, right? One of the arguments made by the lawyer of the Koma Gadamaru passengers was that um, the passengers on board, or South Asians, are a branch of the Caucasian race. Um, and reinforcing that Aryan mythology, right? Um, and so when we dislodge the, uh, or unmoor the Komagadamaru from that Canadian focus, these are the other aspects that we can get at. And in my own work, I've started to trace this in other kinds of dimensions as well, <clears throat> even within the borders of the Canadian nation. So when we situate, for example, um, the Komagadamaru's journey in relationship to questions of labor, uh, we can think about the ways in which there were Punjabis that were very much influenced by the industrial workers of the world, as well as the Socialist Party of Canada in that early period of the 1900s. There were Indian revolutionaries <clears throat> um, that really worked quite closely with the Socialist Party of Canada to create mass movements through political education. They drew on ideas of socialists um, and, and applied them to how they could overthrow the British Raj. Um, you had the uh, connections um, between unions and uh, non-white peoples, although of course unions were deeply racist during that time too, uh, right? But some of them did develop close ties with South Asians. Um, more so than they did with Chinese and Japanese workers <clears throat> in Canada because they weren't seen as an economic th threat 
unlike China, which was seen as economically threatening. So I, I want to track some of the unsettled the Koma Gadamaru story, partly uh, unmooring it by looking at the ways in which um, South Asians settled in Canada, and they settled partly through these connections that they made that they made to labor. I'm also thinking of um, the ways in which the Komagadamaru's unmooring happens in relation to indigenous dispossession and settler sovereignty, right? How that settler colonialism is related. So even in even if you want to just focus on 1914, the um, the year that the Komagadamaru arrived in the Barad Inlet, um, you have to look at other things that were happening during that time. 1914 was a time when the Act, uh, the Indian Act was amended to give the Superintendent General more power to appoint administrators of those deemed to be, and this is in air quotes, insane uh, Indians. It, that uh, same legislation targeted off-reserve Indigenous Indians, practicing their traditions by criminalizing them. Um, and as well as thinking about um, getting unmooring the multicultural redemptive narrative where there is ongoing settler colonialism, right? There's ongoing um, uh, settler sovereignty that's taking place that is really aimed at breaking the relationship between Indigenous peoples and their lands and their waterways, their, their notion of place. 1914 also needs to be unsettled when we put in conversation the ways in which the fiction of crown sovereignty was being enforced by controlling who was allowed in and into the emerging nation of Canada through um, restricted policies around questions of disability. So the Immigration Act around that time was uh, allowing the deportation of immigrants that were deemed to be infirm or, um, this is in quotes, convicted of any crime involving moral turpitude, uh, that were deemed to be prostitutes or professional beggars, anyone um, who was marked as being, and this is quotes, idiots, imbeciles, feeble-minded persons, epileptics, insane persons, um, and anyone inflicted with a loathsome disease, close quotes. And that's still relevant today, right? Canada still has medical requirements um, in which they can deny immigrants based on a so-called excessive demand that they're going to put too much pressure on the social system of Canada, healthcare or education, for example. Um, we can also unsettle the, um, the journey of the Komagadamaru and moor it from it being primarily a story of South Asians by thinking about the white supremacist logics that dictated the journey of this ship in relation to the Chinese. Now, the, remember, the Chinese weren't directly barred from entering into Canada in 1914, but they were subject to a head tax since 1885, which by 1903 was $500. Even within Canada, there were various laws that were being passed, one, you know, one of which is um, that um, Chinese businesses in Saskatchewan, for example, couldn't hire white women. And partly because there was a fear of sexual and intimate relationship between women and, and Chinese men. Um, and when we think about women uh, in this 
context, we can also remember that uh, there were, in fact, um, a, a ban put on Indi uh, on South Asian women coming into Canada. Again, this was a way to ensure that South Asian men would not settle. And those South Asian men that went to India to get married couldn't bring their wives back. There were a couple of attempts made in the early 1900s, and then they were forced um, to the the, fa the family, so the wife and the children were deported. Um, <clears throat> so, and this was all happening at the same time that white women were actually being extended some uh, particular kinds of rights within the British Empire, while Indigenous women's rights were being formally uh, diminished. Um, whether that be by preventing Indigenous women being included in political activities related to banned governments um, or by uh, imposing um, the heterosexual normative institution of marriage in which um, uh, white women were given the same legal rights to property as men at the provincial level during 1914. But uh, in the meantime, Indigenous women, black women, Chinese women, South Asian women uh, were facing genocide, containment, and exclusion. Uh, so popular sovereignty was kind of a bullshit facade, right, in this context. Um, well, and, and like at a demographic level for most of this history that you've just painted too, for like listener reference point, it's always worth remembering that in 1871, when British Columbia enters Canadian Confederation, people who today would be viewed as white were a demographic majority within the province, uh, outnumbered by Indigenous peoples and people descended from Asian migrants. And so what you're tracing here is the like work of producing British Columbia and by extension Canada as a white space in which white supremacism is the basis of what quote-unquote popular sovereignty is actually founded upon. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what I'm mooring and I think unsettling uh, do in combination in many ways is, so unsettling to me allows us to center the question of Indigenous sovereignties Indigenous self-determination, um, and what unmooring adds to that and sort of complements is thinking about, okay, if we take the Komogadamaru beyond South Asians, beyond the moment of 1914, and beyond Canadian methodological nationalism, what is it that we garner about forces of power? So I think those are key pieces. And then wake work, you know, the brilliant Christina Sharp um, wake work <clears throat> is um, in the way that Sharp is really thinking about it. And I think others have done too, such as Sadia Hartman, um, really thinking about the ongoing kind of legacies. I mean, part of what Sharp is doing in her work is brilliantly helping us think about the embodied aspects of blackness and the violence that happened on seas, right, in where the seas are burial grounds, where thousands upon thousands of Africans were killed. Um, and so 
to me, what wake work does is center questions of um, enslavement and continuing anti-blackness. Now, I do want to kind of signal that I think, um, and this I really learned through um, the work that Equality Labs is doing, and this is an anti-casteist uh, organization based out of uh, the U.S., one of the things I've learned from them is about um, the uh, Africans in India, that anti-blackness is a pre-modern phenomena amongst South Asians, you know. And so when we're thinking about wake work, we have to think about the fact that in the 7th and 20th century, Arab vessels were bringing several hundred thousands of trafficked Africans into South Asia as part of the Indian Ocean slavery. Now, certainly some um, Africans came as merchants, sailors, bodyguards, high-ranking officials to what we now know as South Asia. But the majority came because they were forced to through slavery, servitude. Um, and when slavery was formally abolished uh, in the British Empire, the Siddhis, the Africans in India, as they're known, fled into India's um jungles, really fearing recapture and torture. So I think when we're thinking about wake work, this also transcends time. This is prior to the Comagata Maru that we need to situate it in. And then I think wake work also allows us to make the connections between um, the abolition of plantation slavery in the British Empire, which was 1834, um, and the ongoing demand in the British colonies, and this is like so telling of white supremacy, the abolition of plantation slavery still meant that there was now a vacuum in the labor-intensive economies, right? So what they, what the um, Brits did was now introduce laborers from India um, because they had now... A, Formally, anyway, abolished slavery. Slavery continued. Let me tell you, after that, slavery still continues. Um, uh, and it's still targeting Africans and it's still targeting people from the global south. Um, but what, um, as Mongia does, um, and the name of her book, so I give it to you correctly, is Indian Migration and Empire, a Colonial Genealogy of the Modern State. What she brilliantly does in her book is think about the ways in which Laborers from India, and this is like over 1.3 million Indias, were sent to Mauritius, Guyana, Trinidad, Jamaica, Fiji, Australia, Kenya, South Africa, Uganda, as part of the um, replacement of enslavement, replacing that. Um, and so the Comagata Maru is important in relation to thinking about wake work because it's related to the logics of migration control in which, and this is Mongia's argument, there was migration control from empire states to nation states. And this shift from empire states to nation states partly happens through the modern passport, which is very much linked to the Comagata Maru. The passport system was set up in Canada, for example, to prohibit Indians from going to Canada, um, where there was only a certain number of passports, or you might call them visas today, only a certain number was agreed upon by governments of India and Canada. 
and that if you didn't have a passport you and you arrived at a Canadian port, you could be deported. So this sort of movement of free labor was never free at all, but always under the control of empire or emerging states. So I think that's part of the wake as well, the connection between um, uh, labor exploitation that is deeply racialized, right? The racialist capitalist imperative of, um, uh, of different kinds of imperial and colonial projects. That's part of the wake work. And then I think the other kind of piece around wake work is thinking about how the journey of the Komagadamaru crisscrossed with black um, histories within and across borders of empire into colonial Canada. Right, Canada, Canadian history tends to focus on um, the abolishment of slavery or the Canadian Underground Railway, where you know blacks escaped from southern states in the U.S. and uh, but Prime Minister Laurier in, in 1911 was very clear that um, uh, immigrants belonging to, and this is his language, belonging to the Negro race um, could be excluded uh, because they were deemed unsuitable to the climate and requirements of Canada. Now, how like problematic this is at the same time that the Kamagadamaru is making its physical journey Keep in mind that Indigenous people were already enslaved by the French since at least 1628 in Canada. Um, so it's not new. And sexual violence was a feature of this colonial controlled slavery, um, uh, particularly the rape and unconsensual um, assault of, of various uh, African women. Um, and then even when... Um, uh, escaped or uh, slaves from the U.S. or those that had freedom and, and wanted to come to Canada never got the land that they were promised. They were given so you know infertile land. They were still subject to formal bondage. And in fact, um, as uh, Robin Maynard has noted, there was a reverse underground railway out of Canada. Right? They wanted to get the hell out of here. Um, so I think wake work allows a, it comes together with unmooring in that it it allows us to think about the ways in which anti-blackness is pre-modern amongst South Asians in which there's a connection between the plantation economy that the British imposed and indentured uh, labor or any kind of cheap exploitative labor that was brought from India in particular but across the colonies and in which there was enslavement in, in, a, in the Canadian context uh, at the same time, or, or I should say more precisely, Upper and Lower Canada by the Brits and, and the French. Mm -hmm. So yes, that's a long answer, but yes. No, and I think that that's a really great answer. And just for listeners to point them to a, a really important recent report that the International Labour Organization released, we can see the ongoing wake of all that history that you just traced by the ILO's observation that by its estimations today, one in every 150 people on planet Earth are in situations of forced labor. Uh, and that includes uh, the gendered component of people who do reproductive work in forced marriages as well. And so it's a really rich report that's on the landing page of the ILO's website that I think people 
should be flocking to to read in terms of how much of the contemporary global capitalist order relies on heavily racialized and heavily gendered forced labor. Hmm. Wow. I didn't realize um, the figures were so high. Stark. Um, yeah. yeah. To, to hear 150 as the like conservative mm-hmm. estimate uh, mm-hmm. is really jarring. Yeah. And I, and I might add to this sort mm-hmm. of work question, Phil, that I, I think the other sort of component of this is that the deeply entrenched anti-blackness, and of course, um, there are many black people who are indigenous as well, right? So we have to kind of really think about that. Um, the anti-blackness in globally, uh, but I'm thinking here of the North American context, serves South Asians in many ways, right? Like the the sort of weaponization of the war, so-called war on drugs and weaponization of anti-blackness and, and anti-indigenousness um, has a, sort of positioned some South Asians, and I want to be really careful, some South Asians as being preferable to uh, black or indigenous subjects in particular, right? There's no accident that we had at the last federal election, for example, more South Asian particularly Sikh Punjabi uh, MPs elected than any other racialized group. Uh, And so, yeah, I just want to point out that part of the ongoing wake work um, and unmooring is to unmoor this sort of model minority fantasy um, that the Canadian state imposes uh, because this is being done by still constructing black people as criminals. Um, You know, there's still racial profiling and carding. There's still the targeting of black people, including black women and trans folks by police and agents of the police. Um, Black people are still uh, facing detention and deportation at very high rates. There is second generation segregation facing black people. There's the school to prison pipeline. This is all tracked by scholars such as Desmond Cole and Robin Maynard and others. Um, uh, And none of this is happening to South Asians, right? Like, Not to say, I should correct myself because I imagine you're going to get reactions to that. South Asians certainly do feel um, and experience racial profiling, particularly those that wear turbans, that are veiled, that are Muslim or Arab, they're still targeted around securitization. But the high rates of death in, 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 um, by police and high rates of incarceration are facing indigenous and black communities primarily. Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you. Um, moving into our second to last question, uh, I wanted to ask specifically about Davina Bandar's chapter uh, in which she does an excellent job of tracing out the ongoing legacies of the Komagata Maru in contemporary debates over Canada's temporary foreign workers program, which you've mentioned at several points in the interview. Could you describe these connections to the listeners? Uh, And also, if you'd like, maybe reflect on how the application of this book's colonial analytic to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic continues to show 
both the reproduction of white settler societies structured in dominance through racial difference making, but also, importantly, the infrastructures of resistance and solidarity or care that negatively racialized communities build and rebuild in the face of this domination. Mm. Yeah, it's a really big question, an important one. Um, so yeah, Bandar in the book, really the edited book on the comic Adam Arudi and Maureen book, really emphasizes that there are connections between the comic Adam and debates about temporary foreign worker program in Canada on three grounds. The first is the context, the historical context for even having an international migration network of control. The second is a production of racialized and gendered um, cheap labor. And we're still seeing that today with the uh, temporary foreign worker program. Although I do want to make clear that I think the temporary foreign worker program has both um, uh, low wage and what they call high wage workers, right? So it's the low wage workers that are being particularly exploited. We can think here about those that come um, as domestic workers uh, in in the home or as nannies, uh, but then, you know, there are also high paid um, temporary foreign workers as well. And so the third one that uh, Davina raises is the status of immigration, temporary versus permanent. So this has been an ongoing fight um, and uh, a number of organizations in Canada have been fighting to have temporary foreign workers that are in the low wage sectors to have the, a path to permanency. Those that come as temporary foreign workers in the high wage or high skilled sectors do already have a path to permanent residency, but those that are in the um, considered cheap labor don't right now. So the Comagat and passengers were seen as foreign migrants entering Canada as laborers. They were underpaid, they were precarious, and the same is true for those in low-wage temporary foreign worker positions. Um, That could be domestic service or the agricultural sector. Uh, So there is a geospatial relationship here, uh, particularly through the Asia-Pacific regions, where we have to think about the segregated and tiered labor market that exists, particularly in British Columbia here. And then in terms of your second part of your question, Phil, around um, the colonial analytic and the ongoing COVID pandemic uh, and its relationship to whiteness and resistance. So this is key. Um, There's a really great piece by uh, Anita Givan, Davina Banda, Baljit Pradasi and Nisha Nath that I recommend called Poetics of Care, Remedies for Racial Capitalism Gone Viral. Yes, I'm making a plug. Um, (laughs) uh, That I think really kind of gets at the kind of question you're asking here. Um, And what they do in that piece is argue that there isn't, well, one one of the pieces that really ties uh, racial capitalism with the COVID pandemic Uh, is the um, increasing language that is being used around carcerality, right? That the pandemic was a lockdown. It was solitary. It was about confinement. This was what typified the public health responses in North America. Um, And in the meantime, 
you saw the increasing surveillance of state-sanctioned brutality that was happening, increasing surveillance of black people, indigenous people, people of color. Um, you know, the, I remember the uh, ways in which in Brampton, for example, uh, the number of South Asian healthcare workers that were being targeted, uh, even though they were the ones working, cleaning hospitals and uh, doing all sorts of essential work, were being targeted. Um, and this was also a time when Black people and Indigenous people were, the care for them was being withheld. We saw this through the weight of police violence. Um, we saw this through the destruction of resource extraction, um, targeting indigenous communities. So as well as the natural world, right, the sort of um, the death of bees from pesticides was still continuing, the habitat destruction, the air pollution. These are all part of the web of racial capitalism, I think, that we saw during the COVID pandemic. And that's not separate from the temporary foreign worker program or the exploitation of, com of passengers coming from India in the early 1900s for cheap labor. Um, so what, what that has taught me is that we need to think about, we remember that the so-called crisis of COVID is actually, actually a structural problem. There, it's one of the few, few times I find um, Patrick Wolf's notion of a structure rather than event actually helpful, right? That we can think of the, the crisis um, as a structure for BIPOC communities rather than the COVID pandemic as um, an event. There have been boiled water advisories for decades in indigenous communities which, in which they are dying. Um, that's a pandemic. There's a pandemic on missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. That's a pandemic. There's a pandemic of black women uh, and trans uh, black folks being targeted in across the North America. That's a pandemic. Um, and one of the pieces that I really love um, is the ongoing, and I want to emphasize the ongoing mutual care that happen amongst racialized communities in the face of this kind of domination. Um, mutual aid became a big conversation <laughs> during the 20, uh, 2020, during the pandemic, but mutual aid has been essential to many of our communities. Um, as a South Asian, I know it was to our community growing up when my parents and my aunts and uncles first immigrated to the UK. And yeah, mutual aid was just a, a practice uh, of everyday life. So, um, and it's been mutual aid across communities. <clears throat> There's been a number, excuse me, <clears throat> efforts made by um, Khalsa Aid, which is a Sikh organization or Sikh organization, sorry, uh, that has um, served in uh, indigenous and black communities during the pandemic, providing supplies that in rural areas that are much needed. And the pandemic is not over. Um, the threat of death facing indigenous and black people, Arabs and Muslims that are being targeted by the state as threats are actually the ones that are threatened by agents of the state.
finally, it's traditional at the New Books Network to close by asking the guests what they're working on right now. Uh, if you have ongoing research or community projects that you'd like to highlight, please feel free to do so. Thanks, Phil. You know, I really haven't thought about the Komagetamaru in all these multiple ways, so I really appreciate the questions. So what I'm doing now is kind of in many ways a continuation of uh, the colonial analytic. So I'm looking, one piece project I'm looking at right now is um, the transnational components of settler colonialism um, by looking at uh, Sikhi, which is a philosophy or way of life, and Sikh um, diaspora and how we are implicated in settler colonialism. But I'm doing this for the first time by drawing on Sikhi teachings. So my argument is essentially we need to think about the transnational components of settler colonialism, or in the words of Phil Henderson, Dr. Henderson, um, settler imperialism. Uh, But also that... um, those of us that do have connections with non-Western traditions, and I know that colonialism has broken this for a lot of people, but those of us that do have access to that, that we might draw on those to engage in what Binash Jeffrey calls diasporic refusal. So our refusal to participate in settler colonialism. So that's one project. And the other one that I'm very excited about is with Davina Bandar, Anita Gibbon, and Nisha Nath. And that is a project on the letters. And this was a project inspired by Nisha Nath um, during the COVID pandemic in 2020 when, uh, or just before that, the death of um, the murder of George Floyd and how there was a flurry of letters by presidents across universities, right? Saying they're standing in solidarity, um, blah, blah, that symbolic bullshit. Uh, that they that what was it that the university was creating about itself that it was writing about itself and then we started thinking about all the letters that we have written to the university Um, and then as Anita Gavan jokingly says you know we also need to think about the letters EDI EDI should die, uh, D-I-E, um, is that uh, or the letters PhD, right? Like how we think about ourselves as lettering. Um, anyway, it's this fun project. I'm learning a lot through these brilliant, brilliant uh, women. And um, yeah, it's great to be doing art and writing in that project with them. That sounds fascinating and just excellent. Um, Rita DeMoon, co-editor of Unmooring the Komagata Maru, charting colonial trajectories, out now from University of British Columbia Press. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much, Phil.